Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. True Crime Army, welcome to Military Murder. I am your host, Margot, and today I bring to you an unprecedented case that began in the 80s but was not technically solved until 2010. In 1985, the wife of an Air Force captain and two of their three daughters were brutally murdered in their home. A suspect was quickly identified and brought to trial by North Carolina and sentenced to death. But the presentation of the case had its flaws, and the case of the Eastburn murders would fill courtrooms, newspaper articles, blogs, and now podcasts for the following 30 years. Join me today as I discuss the case against Army Sergeant Timothy Hennis, the only man in history to be on death row after being acquitted of the same crime 20 years earlier. Now, let's dig in. So let me just start out with listing some of my sources for this episode. I used the 1988 North Carolina Supreme Court opinion, the 2017 Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces opinion, an amazing book by Scott Wisnett titled Innocent Victim, a CNN article by Tom Patterson, and some clips from WTVD News from 1985. Before I begin my story, I want to talk to you a little bit about military moves. If you know anyone in the military, you know that military families move often. And the spring and the fall in the military is filled with wonder and excitement. Where are they going to be assigned next? People don't move every year, but they move every few years. And service members have a dream sheet. It's basically something that they use to inform their superiors of the next locations that they want to go to either their next location or the next position that they want to hold. And some people may focus on just job opportunities and leadership potential, something that's going to help them obtain more rank. But sometimes people focus on location. They may want to go to Hawaii so they can go to the beach after work, or they may want to go to Germany to go to as many beer festivals as they want. The spring of 85 was no different for Air Force Captain Gary Eastburn. During this time, he was stationed at Pope Air Force Base, North Carolina. But he had just found out that he was assigned his dream job as an air liaison officer with the British Air Force in England. Gary had been married to the love of his life, 31-year-old Katie, for 10 years, and they had three beautiful daughters. Kara was five, Aaron was three, and Jana was 19 months old. In addition to a dream job, Gary was offered the opportunity to attend a 10-week officer training corps at Maxwell Air Force Base. Today, it's called Squadron Officer School. And the fleeting thought of taking his family with him crossed his mind, but he really didn't want to yank his oldest daughter out of school and really messing with the routine. He just, he didn't want to do that. It didn't seem ideal for him or his wife. And so he left by himself. This is a decision I am sure he regrets terribly. While Gary was in school, the Eastburns kept in touch by letter and landline phone. Katie would call her husband every Saturday at 8 a.m., and Katie never failed. 
And this routine went untouched for nine weeks until the day before Mother's Day, Saturday, May 11th. Gary was waiting for the punctual 8 a.m. phone call that he was used to. And he was eager to talk to the family this particular Saturday because it was a week away from when he was going to be reunited with them. So by 8.15, he hadn't heard from his wife. And and although they were trying to save some money, he figured that one collect call wasn't going to break the bank. So he dialed, but no answer. And he became a little bit uneasy, but soon he had to do something with his unit. So he went off and then he returned back. And at 11 in the morning, he called again and again, no answer. Later that afternoon, after he tried her again, he decided, hey, I'm going to reach out to a friend of mine to go check up on my wife and my family. And so his friend goes to check on the family they knock and there's nothing. And by this point, Gary is concerned and he decides to call the police for them to do a welfare check. And that night, a police officer comes by the house, knocks. There's no lights on. There's nothing going on. And they leave a note. On Mother's Day, May 12th, Katie's neighbor, though, Bob and his wife, they're outside chatting and they think it's odd. They hadn't seen Katie since Thursday. And they were concerned because the newspapers outside their house were piling up and the family station wagon was parked outside and it had been unmoved since they had last seen her on Thursday. It just seemed eerily quiet. Usually the house was you know, filled with young children running outside, running inside, probably shouting, and it was just very quiet. They began to think back to when was the last time that they saw Katie and they remembered it was on Thursday night when Katie came by to borrow some milk and she stayed for a little bit before leaving. On Sunday, the neighbors, they're sufficiently concerned. They are wondering where Katie is. I just want to interject here because this was in the mid 80s where everyone knew everyone's business. But how long would you have to be missing for your neighbors, not your family, but for your neighbors to notice and do something about it? It's so sad when you think about it. My neighbors, they'd probably just assume that I was out on vacation and they would be none the wiser. But anyway. Somebody came by last night about 11 o'clock, rang the doorbell and asked me if, if I had heard anybody or I haven't seen Katie next door. Apparently her husband had called and couldn't get a hold of her and called the individual who came up, came up here last night. And I said, no, but I don't think any problems exist or anything like that. I had to go into work this morning and uh, I got back at about 1230 and I seen the newspapers out there. So I put them up on the back porch and I said, let me go and check, ring the doorbell. So I went up to the front door, rang the doorbell, and nobody came to the door. And then I thought I heard a baby cry, and I said, what? So I rang it again, and the baby was crying. I called my wife. She had come out the door because she knew I had gone over to her because I had been, I mentioned it earlier this morning that it was starting to bother me. She went ahead and uh, came over, and I said, listen, if you can hear Jana crying. And I rang the doorbell, and she says, yes, that's the baby crying. I says, okay, go ahead and... Uh, she says, what should I do? I says, go ahead and call somebody. She says, who? I says, call the sheriff's department. So they got out here. It took them about 15 minutes or so. The, one of the deputies came, and uh, I told him what had happened. We went around the back, and uh, he checked the door in the back and looked up at the windows, and uh, we came back around the front. And I told him I heard the baby, but when we rang the doorbell when he was here, the baby didn't cry. So that was almost like he didn't believe me. We raided on a sergeant from the uh, sheriff's department to come, and I, I, I informed him that all the all the latches on the windows were unlocked, and uh, he went ahead and uh, uh, opened the mm-hmm. outdoor out win- outside window, uh, and uh, waited for the sergeant to give him the word. And he says that's all I was waiting for. So he cut the screen, mm-hmm. and then the window opened real easy on the inside, and the baby was right inside there. 
and he went in uh, and he came back out in a couple of minutes and I asked him if it was what I thought it was and he said I can't verify anything until we get verification from him. And a couple of minutes later he asked somebody to come and get the baby so I brought Jan mm -hmm. over here and my wife cleaned her off and, and fed her. And, uh, she was pretty, I guess the baby was pretty pretty emaciated or uh, yeah, She was, uh, my wife fed her and she uh, threw up and a few times. I, I don't know when the last time was she ate. Once Jana is safe with her neighbors, the police officers enter the home and they are quickly hit with the smell of death. He found Katie next to her bed, nude. Her throat had been cut. Erin lay beside her parents' bed. She had been stabbed to death and her head had nearly been decapitated. Kara met the same fate and she had been stabbed 10 times. The fact that Jana was spared her young life was a miracle, but Jana had suffered dehydration from lack of food and water for three days. Her teeth had actually turned black from lack of nutrition, and it was later determined that if she had been left undiscovered for two more hours, she would have met the same fate as her mother and sisters. A tiger team of detectives were put on this case because they wanted to find the person responsible not only to get a monster off the street, but in an effort to thwart neighborhood fears. Everyone was on edge. Who could do this? Katie was the sweetest woman ever. And to kill two little girls? They immediately combed the bodies and housed for evidence. And they were surprised at how little blood was found, considering that almost all three bodies had been nearly decapitated. They called in the lab to come and lumen all the place. And that's when they found their answer. The killer had spent a lot of time cleaning up after himself. It appeared that there was plenty of blood in the sink, on the doorknobs, and light switches. And the detectives also discovered that Katie's ATM card and some of her cash were also missing from the house. And then it was later discovered that Katie's card had actually been used on Friday and then again on Saturday. And the maximum amount of money had been withdrawn, which at that time was $150 each time. And it was believed that the murders had occurred on Thursday, May 9th, because remember, the newspapers, they began piling outside on May 10th and the neighbors had last seen her on Thursday night. The investigation also revealed that Katie had been raped. The detectives call Gary to give him the awful news. Gary answers the phone and he asks, are any of them alive? This question kind of took detectives by surprise. Like, what? How, how would you even know that they were dead? So they didn't give him any information besides to tell him that there was a death in the family and he had to come home immediately. Gary was devastated. His worst fears were beginning to unravel. The detectives interviewed the babysitter and she discussed a few things that were kind of crazy and weird in this particular case. The first thing was that the last time she babysat was on Tuesday. And while she babysat, she received a harassing phone call from an unknown man. This call wasn't unfamiliar to Katie because ever since Gary left on his duty assignment, she started receiving harassing calls from an unknown man. Katie had told Julie how to deal with these calls. This was interesting. Okay, so this piqued the investigator's interest. And then Julie also said that on Tuesday when she was babysitting, she had heard a message from a woman named Angela and she was interested in buying the family dog. You see, the Eastburns were beginning what I'm going to call the PCS purge. And this is when you're preparing to move from one base to another and, and you have so much crap. You've accumulated so much, so many things, you know, the whole time that you've been there. 
So you either have, you know, a garage sale, you put things on Craigslist, or you basically just give things away. And this wasn't really any different from with the dog. They loved their family dog, Dixie, but they knew that going overseas and having her quarantined, that that was going to be difficult. So they had decided they were going to put her up for adoption and Katie just kept putting it off. And she decided to post the ad in the Beeline Grab Brag, which is a classified paper like Craigslist, but in the 80s. The detectives deduced that Katie must have rehomed the dog by this point because there was no dog at the house and there were no bloody prints anywhere. Gary confirmed that he did receive a letter earlier that week from Katie saying that a nice man had rehomed the dog. Armed with this information, the police knew they had to find the person who who rehomed Dixie because they might have been the last person to see her instead of the neighbors, and maybe they could help solve this triple murder. While police were combing through the house, a young man came forward and he told them that he had seen something strange outside the Eastburn house a few days earlier. The witness was 20-year-old Patrick Cohn. He told detective that he was walking past the Eastburn house at 3.30 in the morning on Friday, May 10th. And as he was passing the Eastburn house, he saw a tall white male. And this guy was wearing a black hat, a black members only jacket over a white shirt, black jeans and sneakers. And he was carrying a garbage bag over his shoulder and walking from the Eastburn driveway. The man then told Patrick, quote, I'm getting an early start this morning, end quote. Patrick then saw as the man jumped into his white Chevy Chevette and drove off. Patrick was very cooperative and he provided police with sufficient details to come up with a sketch. But it wasn't just any sketch where he's just, you know, saying things. And as the sketch artist is drawing, he's just like, yeah, 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 that's sure. That's exactly what he looks like. He was actually really involved in the drawing of this sketch. By this point, the detectives thought they had sufficient information to put out a newscast and they were asking the public for help. They asked for anyone who may have purchased a dog named Dixie to come forward, and they also published the composite sketch. A few miles away, a 27-year-old Army sergeant and his wife, they're watching TV during lunch, and then this news was broadcast. Army Sergeant Timothy Hennessy's jaw dropped, and his wife Angela's looking over at him. She's puzzled, like, what are we looking at right now? They gathered their belongings and they went straight to the police station. There must be a misunderstanding. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. 
If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. When Tim walked into the precinct, the detectives could not believe their luck. Tim was a spitting image of the composite sketch. And so he's sitting there. He tells police, hey, I got a dog from a woman recently who posted it on a classified ad. And Tim had nothing to hide. He waived his rights and he agreed to talk to the detectives. Tim tells the following story. He says, my wife saw this classified ad about this dog. I called the lady and agreed that I would pick up the dog on Tuesday, May 7th. So I go to the house on May 7th and the woman invites me into her house. She talks to me about her upcoming move. She tells me that her husband is away and then we just talked about the dog. I then ask her if I could use her bathroom. I use the bathroom. I put the leash on the dog and off I went. As I was leaving the house, the woman told me she was going to call me later in the week because she wanted to check up on the dog. During the interview, Tim tells detectives that on Thursday, May 9th, in anticipation of having to work two shifts that weekend, and so that weekend is Mother's Day weekend, and because he has to work for the Army that weekend, he tells his wife, hey, listen, I'm going to take you to your parents' house, which is about 90 minutes away. And after he drops them off there, he comes straight home to Fayetteville and he goes straight to bed. That evening, though, he does remember that the dog lady... She calls to check on Dixie. And it's interesting because he never remembers her name. But basically the conversation is, hey, how's the dog? Is the dog doing okay? Yep, dog is good. Good to go. Bye. And they hang up. And the rest of that weekend he works. He cleans around the house as his wife had told him to. And then on Monday he picks up his wife. He is super helpful. Tim voluntarily provides all of the DNA evidence the police could ask for. He gives a semen sample, a blood sample, and fingerprints. At the same time, they have Patrick, who's their main witness. They have him at the precinct as well. And when they present Patrick with a photo lineup, including a picture of Tim, he picks Tim's picture. They drive Patrick around the precinct and they say, hey, do you see the car that you saw there that evening? And he points to Tim's white Chevy Chevette. Tim is eventually allowed to leave the police precinct. However, little did he know that a few hours later at one in the morning, the police were going to show up at his house with an arrest warrant and a search warrant. The detectives flipped Tim's house upside down. They're looking for anything, evidence, hair, whatever matches the description of what Patrick said he was wearing. They searched for that black jacket, that black members only jacket, couldn't find it. They did find two hats that looked similar to the one Patrick said he saw Tim wearing, but they didn't find anything else. There was no blood, there was no hair, there was nothing. After Tim is booked, the newspaper ran an article with Tim's mugshot indicating that he was being implicated in the triple murder. Interestingly enough, as happens a lot of times, a few concerned citizens come forward with some more information about Tim. So let's talk about this information. The first person they talk to is Tim's ex-girlfriend, Nancy. So she comes forward and she says, that night, Thursday night, May 9th, Tim actually came to my house. My husband was away on duty and we chatted for a little bit. Tim tried to put the moves on me, but I told him, hey, hey, no, I'm not not interested in this. So they chatted for a little bit longer, maybe 30 minutes or so. 
and then Tim said he had to go to let the dogs out. Nancy also confirmed that Tim did in fact own a black members-only jacket, but she didn't remember if he was wearing it that day. Even though Nancy's statement, it didn't seem damning for either the defense or the prosecution, it was very interesting because Tim had lied to detectives during his interview because he never mentioned visiting Nancy that night. Another witness that comes forward is the owner of a dry cleaners. She comes forward because she recognizes Tim and she remembers that he dropped off a black members only jacket at the dry cleaners the day of the alleged murders. So the murders happened in the wee hours of Friday, May 10th. And that morning, she says that he dropped off this jacket. When the detectives were like, oh, this is interesting. Did you see anything suspicious on those jackets, like blood or anything like that? She says, no, no blood, just dog hair. Another witness that came forward was one of Tim's neighbors. He took the trash can from the corner in the yard down there and brought it up to the house. And he had flames going all the way up to the roof there. We don't know what he burned, but it was unusual because he didn't rake the yard or anything. He just cut the grass. Didn't look like it was trash he was burning. No, I don't know what it was, but it was something he burned. So this is all pretty incriminating information that we have here. So of the DNA evidence obtained from the scene, none of it could be definitively matched to Tim. And remember, we were years away from the DNA technology we know today. Something that I found interesting that was discovered during the investigation, Tim was terrible with money. He had been in trouble for passing bad checks in the past. And what we discover, and this is this is all speculative, right? But it was discovered that earlier the week of the murder, so before the murders happened, basically he receives an eviction letter from his landlord saying, you better pay your $310 rent or we are going to evict you. Earlier in the day of May, May 9th, Tim drops off a rent check to his landlord and he asks the landlord not to deposit it for a few days. It's hard to say if this is evidence that he was the one that maybe stole Katie's ATM to get the $300 or if this was just a coincidence. I mean, sometimes, you know, if if he did, if the murder happened on, on May 9th, May 10th and people in the military get paid on the 1st and the 15th, it's possible that he gave her the check to say, hey, listen, the, the check isn't going to clear right now, but when I get paid on the 15th, you're going to have your money. But with all of the evidence against him, mostly circumstantial and the eyewitness account of Patrick, the state, they feel pretty confident, hey, we have enough to prove that this guy did it beyond a reasonable doubt. The state of North Carolina charges Tim with rape and first degree murder. Tim's trial begins on May 27, 1986, a year after the brutal triple murder. The trial lasts six weeks, and the jury consists of seven men and five women. During the trial, the prosecution, they attempt to introduce 99 color pictures. And these color pictures are of the three bodies at the scene and also autopsy pictures. The defense objects like, no, 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 objection, objection but the judge allows a third of the pictures to come in as evidence. But the defense is vigorously arguing, hey, these are there's too many pictures, first of all, and it's too prejudicial. We've already stipulated that the girls had been stabbed to death, but the prosecution argued that they needed these pictures to prove premeditation. And interesting, these pictures, they would be shown on a newly built screen display in the courtroom. The display was seven and a half feet high, by 11 feet wide. I mean, this is basically a movie screen in the middle of a courtroom. 
And so the prosecution, they show these pictures in open court for two days. And of course, they show the pictures while they're questioning witnesses. And when the first picture is shown, I, I don't know where I read this, maybe it was the book or maybe it was a news article, but there was an audible gasp that came from the courtroom because these are graphic pictures and they're just blown up in your face. In another stunt the defense would vehemently object to, the prosecution, they request a live demonstration of the outside of the Eastburn house. So let me explain this. The prosecution wants to bring the jury to the house outside and they want Patrick, their star witness, to walk through exactly where he was standing when he allegedly saw Tim and where Tim was standing and where the car was and everything. And so this seems kind of like a good idea, except when you're doing a demonstration, you want to basically set the parameters almost identical to what they would have been at at the time of the crime or when you would have seen that person doing it then. But that was at what, like three in the morning or one in the morning? They're doing this in the daylight at noon in the middle of the day when the sun is shining down. And so the defense is like, nope, objection, objection, objection. And the judge says, nope, I'm going to allow it. Another thing that was a little bit bizarre in the trial was that the prosecution, after their closing arguments, they want the exhibits published to the jurors. Judge allows it. And what they do is they pass out these eight by 10 color pictures of the bodies and the autopsies and just these gruesome pictures. And they allow these jurors to pass these pictures around to each other for 90 minutes. So it's not surprising when on July 4th, 1986, after 12 plus hours of deliberation, Tim is found guilty of rape and first degree murder. And he's later sentenced to death. So you're probably thinking, great, another despicable baby killer in jail where he deserves to be. But the title of this episode is Army Retirement and then Death Row. So this is where the roller coaster gets interesting. After the trial, the defense pounces and they're like, you judge have committed so many errors. (laughs) We're getting a new trial. And they claim 59 errors on appeal. The North Carolina Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And the defense is ready. They're ready to argue. And after the argument, the Supreme Court says that they want an encore of the show. I'm here quoting here, quote, the show, end quote. Basically, they want to sit in the jurors' shoes and they want to see exactly what the jurors saw when they were sitting in trial. After viewing the show, the Supreme Court, they're convinced that there was an error and they issued a ruling within 22 days of oral argument. And just for reference, this is unusual since it usually takes minimum six months to issue a ruling. It's not surprising to find out that the defense won a new trial. The defense, they're eager. They're eager to get the show on the road with a retrial. The trial was set to begin on February 27, 1989. By this second trial, the defense, they're ready. They're ready to take on every single piece of evidence the prosecution introduced at the first trial. And they had a few things up their sleeves. As for the prosecution, they thought this second trial would only be a formality and they basically phoned it in. But boy, were they wrong. The biggest punch the defense took during the second trial was to go after the prosecution's star witness, Patrick. You see, between the first and the second trial, Patrick had gotten himself into a little bit of trouble. And as any young and arrogant man could be, he thought he was invincible because he was the main witness in a capital case. And so, of course, he gets in trouble, he gets arrested, and he has the audacity to tell the arresting officer, 
Do you know who I am? You better find out who I am because I am the main witness in a capital case. The arresting officer looks at him like, I don't give two craps who you are. You are not to be doing these things. The officer arrests him and writes him up. A few days later, they check up on him to see about the charges. And sure enough, the charges had been dismissed. Armed with this evidence, Tim's defense team had a field day. They basically made it seem like, oh, you guys are buying your main witness by dropping charges when they commit crimes. Additionally, Patrick, he uh, he just drives me insane, but he's going around town telling people he wasn't sure what he saw on the night in question because he had been drinking. And there was a witness who describes Patrick as a liar and an excessive drinker that lives in a fairy tale world. Not exactly the look you're going for with your main witness. Then the defense does the unthinkable. They call Timothy Hennis to the stand. You see, after Tim decided not to testify at his first trial, he felt he hadn't done himself any favors, so he wasn't going to take any chances. I mean, he had already been on death row. What did he have to lose now? And on the stand, Timothy denies any involvement in the triple murder. Deny, deny, deny. He then lays out all his interactions with the Eastburns and dealing with Dixie. He says, hey, I called Katie and we talked that day. I picked up the dog later that night and then I walked off. I heard from her one last time and that was it. Interestingly enough, the prosecution really didn't get anything out of him in cross-examination and the defense, they counted this as a success. The defense then continued on a roll and they go on to this mystery walker defense and they question every single Eastburn neighbor about early morning walkers. Could it have been someone else or their neighbors who walk around the neighborhood quite often? And the defense then calls a witness named John. And as John is walking into the courtroom, what jurors see when they see John is Tim Hennessy's doppelganger. I mean, John and Tim could have been twins, down to the height, build, hair color, everything. The defense discovered this guy the day after Tim's first conviction. And I found this to be super interesting. People are just reading the newspaper and just calling the police station up in Fayetteville. And after Timothy's conviction, his in his death sentence, his face is again plastered all over the newspaper. And an anonymous caller sees Tim's picture and they're like, holy crap, he looks just like a neighbor I have who lives on Summerhill Road. John actually lived right down the street from the Eastburns on Summerhill Road. When the defense finds out about John, they discover that he works nights at the Winn-Dixie, which is right around the corner from the Eastburn house. And he always carries a change of clothes in his backpack. He walks past the Eastburn house to get to work each day. John testifies that after work, he often had a hard time going to sleep, so it wasn't uncommon for him to take a walk around the neighborhood around three or four in the morning. After the murders, nothing changed. He continued to walk to the Winn-Dixie until he was fired in April of 86 for stealing $21 of merchandise. Another surprising witness that testified at the second trial was the newspaper carrier that was in charge of the Summerhill Road route. The newspaper carrier, she testified that on the night in question, it was foggy and it was dark. When she was passing the Eastburn residence, she saw a light colored van. And she specifically remembers this because she remembers almost crashing into it because of the fog or whatever it was. And as she swerved, she looked up and she saw a man in the Eastburn front yard. And then she goes on to describe this man. He's 5'7 and medium build. 
the man appeared to be going towards the light-colored van, but he, like, brushes up against it, and then he keeps walking. The carrier, she continues down her road, her route, and she's, you know, throwing newspapers out of her van or whatever. And as she's leaving the neighborhood, she sees the man again. But this time, there's much better lighting. And as she describes the man again, she she says he's 5'7", he's medium build. And the defense counsel is like, oh, really? Is it this guy sitting right here at the defense table, Timothy? And she says, no, absolutely not. After the Eastburn murders, she testifies that she began to receive the same harassing calls that Katie Eastburn was getting before she was murdered. And so this just petrified her, so she told no one. And it wasn't until the defense team hunted her down for the second trial that she finally decided to come clean. And also, she just couldn't live with the fact that Tim had gotten the death penalty and he was not the man she saw at the Eastburn house that night. With this, the defense rested. The jury did not take long this time around to deliberate and no one was ready for their verdict. But on April 19, 1989, they found Timothy Hennis not guilty of all charges. Timothy Hennis was a free man. It had been over three years since his arrest and he was finally free. When Tim was asked by the reporters how it felt when everyone says you're guilty, Tim responded with, quote, I just don't know if I can put it into words right now. I'm just so thankful to the jury, thankful and glad, end quote. Another reporter asked about the criticism he had received for being so calm under fire. Tim said, quote, Unfortunately, the army teaches you to control your emotions and to button up your lips. You can't talk back. One of the things you learn in the Army is to be quiet, end quote. Tim also said, You feel very diminished, very worn out, dragged out. Uh, Don't have the self-confidence or the reliability you once had. After Tim's 1989 acquittal, his lawyers had one last piece of advice for him, quote, Get out of the goddamn Army, end quote. This was advice he probably wished he would have taken seriously but he had nowhere to go after spending three years on death row. So he returned to the army and was credited with all the time he had lost and he received back pay. He went on to serve honorably, even doing overseas tours in Iraq and Somalia. And he retired in July of 2004 after serving nearly 23 years in the army and reaching the rank of master sergeant. In 1993, there was a book written about Tim and it was titled Innocent Victim. And there was even a made-for-TV movie miniseries type of thing of the same name that came out in 1996. Tim, after this, he became a poster child for death penalty opponents. And by the way, I read the book Innocent Victims, and I was able to gather most of the facts of this case from that book. So shout out to Scott Wisnett, the author of Innocent Victim. The remaining living Eastburns, they tried to move on the best they could after the acquittal. Gary PCS to England to finally start his dream job, and while he was there, he met an English nurse and he remarried in 1991. He eventually left the Air Force in 1993. After the acquittal, the Eastburn murders case became cold. So, True Crime Army, how would you feel if I left it there? Well, don't worry, this isn't a cold case because in 2005, the Eastburn murder cold case would be turned on its head when Captain Larry Trotter of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office took an interest in the case. Thank God for Trotter. 
Trotter looked at the case with a fresh set of eyes and he reviewed all of the evidence again. And so as he's going through all the boxes of evidence, he's thinking about all the advances in DNA evidence on cold cases in that day, it was like 2005. He finds a vaginal swab that was taken from Katie Eastburn's rape kit. He realizes it has never been tested and, and this can actually be tested now. So he sends it off to the crime lab. And because it's a cold case, it takes forever in a day. A year later, the results show with a 1.2 quadrillion times to one certainty that the semen from the swab belonged to none other than Timothy Hennis. Yes, the man who had been acquitted approximately 17 years earlier. And by this point, Tim had long been retired from the army. He had settled in with his family in the state of Washington. But what I thought was interesting was that neither him nor Gary Eastburn and the Eastburn family, they didn't realize that they were living just 30 minutes from each other. And Captain Trotter has this information. He has this smoking gun now, and there's nothing he can do. It's it's useless evidence for the state of North Carolina because double jeopardy, Tim had already been charged in 1989 and acquitted, and their hands were tied. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. However, in 2006, the Army gets wind that there's this DNA link between Master Sergeant retired Timothy Hennis and this triple murder, and they reopen the case. You're probably thinking, well, they can't do that double jeopardy, blah, 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 blah. You see, but double jeopardy prevents the state from trying someone twice for the same crime. But dual sovereignty, that is something different. It allows a state court and a federal court to try the same defendant for the same crime, although courts are hesitant to take such actions. But what Timothy never in a million years could have imagined was that the army would take an unprecedented action and would recall him to active duty. I need to explain something here. When you're currently serving in the military, guess what? The military owns you. When you retire from the military and you receive a monthly check from Uncle Sam, the military still owns you. Military retirement is not a pension in the usual sense, but it is actually reduced compensation for reduced current services. Had Tim separated from the military before reaching 20 years of service, as his attorneys had told him, he would be a free man. But Tim thought he had gotten away with murder. 
And now he was living comfortably in Washington, receiving his army retirement check. So it's not surprising that on September 26, 2006, Timothy receives an order to return to Fort Bragg within 30 days. And I'm sure he was pissed. Well, while on active duty, Tim is charged with the 1985 murders of Katie, Kara, and Aaron Eastburn. This time, Tim would be tried by a jury of his actual peers, military service members. The court-martial trial consisted of 14 jurors, a mix of officer and enlisted members, and the trial began on March 17, 2010. But this case couldn't be without drama, and a news story runs almost immediately after the third trial. And this news article reveals some information that it could have some serious implications on the evidence that was presented in Third Henna's trial. The story was about a nearby DNA testing facility, which was under investigation for inaccurately reporting evidence in previous crimes. In a nutshell, the lab was manipulating evidence to favor the prosecution. But I should note here that the DNA evidence in the Eastburn case was not affected by the scandal. But even without this scandal, this third trial, it seemed to be more difficult for both the prosecution and the defense. You see, with the passage of time, in this case, 21 years, witnesses had died, memories had faded, and some witnesses, after going through it once and twice, they wanted nothing to do with this case. But this time around, the prosecution had something different. They had actual physical evidence, a physical connection between Timothy and the Eastburn crime scene, his semen. And also, Tim had testified during the second trial, so they could replay his sworn testimony in court, whether he chose to testify this time around or not. During closing arguments, the defense makes a crazy argument, and they argue that it's plausible, although I don't think it's possible, but it's plausible that Tim and Katie had consensual sex on Tuesday. So when he goes to pick up the dog, it's possible, plausible, that he and Katie engaged in consensual sex on that Tuesday. And that the DNA was still present when she was brutally murdered a few days later. The defense attorney actually says, quote, one of the ways of the world and one of the things that we know about human nature is that things can occur spontaneously and for no significant reason. A young soldier whose wife just had a baby recently, a wife while the captain has been away for a long time. All I'm asking is, is it plausible that something occurred independent of the murder? End quote. But the jury wasn't having any of it. And they didn't buy this argument. And on April 8th, 2010, after only deliberating for three hours, they convicted Timothy almost 25 years after the murder. The jury then deliberated 13 hours for sentencing, and they returned a death penalty sentence. The Eastburns had finally gotten justice. Since his third conviction, Tim has filed various appeals, and they keep going till this day. The Army Court of Criminal Appeals denied his appeal in 2016. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, they denied his appeal in 2017. But if you're interested, these appeal decisions can be found on my website and they provide so many more details about the case. Tim Hennis is currently sitting on military death row at the U.S. Army Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, among only three other military death row inmates. 
but the military has not executed anyone on death row in over half a century since 1961. The last military execution was that of Army Private John Bennett for the rape and attempted murder of an 11-year-old girl. So, True Crime Army, I would love to hear from you about this case. Do you think we have heard the last of the Timothy Hennis case? I just don't think so. What are your thoughts on dual sovereignty? I know that that part is probably going to maybe upset people, but it's legit. It's law and it's out there. Do you think Hennis's original defense attorney knew he was guilty and made that statement about him getting out of the army in all seriousness? And finally, what do you think about Timothy Hennis's guilt or innocence? Do you think he did it? Please let me know by reaching out on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. And if you want to reach out personally, please email me at militarymurderpodcast at gmail.com. If you liked my retelling of this true crime, please be sure to give it a five-star rating and don't forget to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss a show. This is a one-woman show created and produced by me, Margot. All of the music was created by Tyops. There was so much more information that I could have gotten into between the three trials. As always, I encourage you to go to www.militarymurderpodcast.com to check out the links to the news articles. Additionally, if you want to suggest a case, you can do so on the website. The only caveat is that there be some military connection. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always and don't forget to be a good neighbor. Have a fantastic week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Let's work on another podcast. So True Crime Army, I already have an update for you. On October 22nd, 2019, Timothy Hennis's case had a mandatory review before the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. The audio for the hearing is available on podcasts. So if you're interested, you can actually take a listen to the audio from his appeal. The name of the podcast is Calf Log. That's Charlie Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Log, Calf Log. I will have a link for that podcast on my website. And I'm not going to provide an update right now because the court hasn't rendered a decision yet, but I will probably provide an update when the decision is published. And I may also include in that same episode some other evidence that I didn't really discuss in this case, but there was just so much more that I could have gotten into so many other red herrings and I just didn't want to go that route with this particular episode, but more to follow.